Welcome in. It's another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast alongside Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. It is always great to have you with us. Feels like we got uh, about two hours worth of show to uh, get into a few minutes here. And coming up in just a little bit, we're going to have Mike DeCourcy with us uh, from the Sporting News, the Big Ten Network. You can see him on Fox. He uh, does bracketology. Uh, He's been an outstanding writer for many years, so he will join us in just a bit. Well, Chris, uh, you were at one of the big games of the season last night, uh, Alabama at Tennessee, and it looks like the Crimson Tide stay at number one nationally might be a short one. They lost 68-59 to the 10th-ranked Volunteers on Wednesday. Uh, too many turnovers, 19 of them for the Tide. It felt like every time down they were giving the ball away against a shorthanded Volunteer team that needed a big win after Tennessee lost back-to-back at the buzzer, first here in Nashville against Vanderbilt and then against Missouri on that heave of the horn. And they also kept Brandon Miller from going off in the second half. But uh, what did you see from that one? Well, first of all, uh, I never saw Led Zeppelin in concert, but uh, I feel like my ears have suffered serious damage. It was loud. (laughs) Tennessee is an underrated basketball school, just in terms of their environment and their fans and stuff. But uh, you could see that despite – and they were missing two starters. Josiah Jordan James was out and Julian Phillips was out. Sometimes that can be a dangerous team when you're shorthanded. And sometimes people can step up. And And last night I thought it was Jonas Adu, uh, the seven-foot freshman with a seven-five-and-a-half wingspan. He had a double-double and three block shots. And Euros Plovcic, uh, the seven-one uh, Serbian, who's kind of – we he's kind of like a hockey goon, but he had ten points – I think their five spot combined for like 25 points, 15 rebounds, three block shots, two assists, and a couple of steals. So if you can get that kind of production, you know, they sort of switched. You know, they were sort of a guard, uh, three-man oriented team, and they had to go inside, and, and I think that was a key. And you're right, uh, uh, Alabama turned it over a ton. They averaged 14 turnovers uh, on the year and they had 12 in the first half Tennessee was just able to play physically with them and you know ball pressure is what Tennessee does and and that's what they believe in that's what they hang their hat on and I think that's sometimes to the detriment of their offense maybe tired legs uh, leads to some of those missed jumpers but boy they really got after it and and I'll tell you uh What's that expression? Uneasy on the uh, is the head that wears the crown or right. whatever. Oh, yep, yep. I'm sure I butchered that, but uh, you know, number one has has been susceptible, and, and number two this year. So uh, you've got a target on your back. I can see where coaches wouldn't necessarily care about that. Uh, I heard when when the when the rankings came out, Alabama was in practice on Monday, and Nate Oates decided not to tell the team. And let them find it kind of find it out organically, and uh, you know the the implication there was okay, that's not that big a deal. Let's not get hung up on it. And plus, we know we're going to Tennessee, right? <laughs> so, yeah, it's tough. I mean, I I've seen many times where a team gets anointed number one, and and by Tuesday. <laughs> they've lost again so. yeah and it's happened to tennessee actually uh over the years it a has at times, vanderbilt you know? yeah yeah in 2008 they they uh it was one versus two they played at memphis on a saturday and won and got number one on monday and on tuesday they played at vanderbilt and promptly lost 
Yeah, that's uh, that's happened many times over the years that that you get that number one ranking, you go right out and have some tough road game after that, and it doesn't last for very long. Dude, it's it's painting a bullseye on your back. You it, might it as well really just is. say, "Kick me, man!" <laughs> <laughs> Put a sign on your back. You know, speaking of Vanderbilt, uh, I've had fun calling the games these last couple of weeks. I always have fun, but uh, these last couple of weeks have been especially fun. Uh, Vanderbilt's Winning, re- yeah. reeled off four straight SEC wins uh, since we last spoke. Have uh, gone to Florida and to South Carolina. Florida on Saturday, and then South Carolina on Tuesday night. Liam Robbins won SEC Player of the Week. He's been playing as well as anybody in the league. Had 32-10 and 10 at Florida and I think it's 24-8 and 8 against South Carolina. Ezra Mignon, the point guard, his assist-to-turnover ratio over the four games in this win streak, 26 assists and only three turnovers. You'll take that every time from your point guard. Oh, yeah. But now you look at this final stretch of the season, and they have a huge game against Auburn coming up on Saturday. Vanderbilt has climbed back over 500 in SEC play at 7-6. and six. You got five to go. Can you stack a few more wins and get yourself into the uh, the bubble conversation here? And nobody's really talking about them yet, but you know it's, it's like being a racehorse and you've been behind the whole season, and then all of a sudden you come back and, and maybe steal it at the wire. But it sure has been a fun stretch for this group. They're playing with a lot of confidence. Uh, sometimes playing well and shooting well aren't necessarily the same thing. They played well at South Carolina, but didn't shoot that well, uh, especially in the first half when they really had a chance to, to blow the game wide open. Uh, I guess the South Carolina team that that even though they were coming off a win they just have had their struggles this year but i thought the legs maybe looked a little tired um playing a third game in seven days and two road trips and all that stuff but uh, really been happy and and, and enjoyed seeing uh, how well vanderbilt's played and uh again huge game against auburn coming up on saturday after they demolished missouri on tuesday night yeah the middle of that sec uh, and actually behind alabama those spots for the first round buys our quarterfinal buys, are, are, it's going to be intense. It really is because Tennessee still has to go to Kentucky, still has to go to Alabama or Auburn, plays Arkansas at home, so oh, goes to Texas A&M as well. So it's not going to be an easy road for, for the Vols either. So Vanderbilt, I, I, you know, they look at your whole body of work, and they had some bad quad four losses, I guess, to Grambling and Wofford, right? Uh Early in, in the uh, year, lost but, to Grambling. They they won against Wofford. Right. Okay, okay, uh, but but yeah, I mean, I, who knows? Huh? They've they've certainly it, it's out there for them. Mississippi State was another one that was right there. I think Joe Lenardi had him in the field uh, prior to last night's game against Kentucky, and Kentucky went in there and won. So now they're probably on the outside of the bubble, and Kentucky is kind of hanging on to its place inside the bubble. Yeah, that that interesting uh, or that Mississippi State Kentucky game was really interesting. At the end, it felt like Kentucky committed a foul that they maybe should not have committed, and, and they kept fouling and putting Mississippi State at the free throw line, just trying to sort of grind out the game and and spin the clock and all those things. But I almost thought that on the one possession that Kentucky should have let them go ahead and go and burn some more clock. And if you give up a layup, you just do instead of stopping the clock, giving them free throws and getting the ball back and getting fouled and going to the other end. Uh, but I guess for uh, that team, all's well that ends well. They were down a couple players uh, playing on the road there in Starkville, a couple teams with a whole lot to play for. Florida won against Ole Miss, but they suffered a major loss with Colin Castleton, their all-SEC big man, yeah. breaking his hand. They have Arkansas coming up next, but – and and just having seen Florida on Saturday, and, and I've watched them quite a bit over the course of the season, but a whole lot of what they do runs through number 12. And if he's not out there, the, it, it's hard to see how they're going to get a whole lot done down the stretch. Now, Jason Jatobo is a huge body. He might be the biggest dude in the SEC, but 
skill-wise, not even close to, to what Castleton does for them. So uh, that that's a gigantic loss for uh, Todd Golden's team. It's tough. Last year he was out, too, and Mike White's last year as coach, and they missed the NCAAs, and I think they would have gotten in had he been available. He's just such a new-age big man who could take you out and, and shoot facing up, can score in the paint, and also as a rim protector. And, and he's he's a mobile guy, too, for as big as he is. Uh, he's not quick, uh, I wouldn't say, but he's no plotter by any means. So that's that's a devastating loss, probably the most – devastating injury in the league this year uh we're going to talk a little more about the big 10 with mike DeCourcy coming up with uh, of course northwestern having themselves a week they swept purdue and indiana and uh, look like they might be in good position to get their second ever ncaa tournament bid i saw quite a bit of miami and north carolina on monday night in the acc now pitt and virginia are leading that league at 12 and 3 but the hurricanes are only a half game back and Chris, having seen some of those teams, I think Miami, they, to me, they might be the best team. Uh, Jim Laranega's group and the success they've had against North Carolina and Duke, not just this season, but overall, uh, since he's been coached there, is crazy. I was looking at some of those stats and how many times he had beaten those two teams, which have been obviously the marquee programs in that league. But uh, they spread you out. They're really tough. Uh, I was pretty impressed with Miami watching them against North Carolina. And you, you got Pitt and Virginia. I don't think anybody would have had Pitt leading the league. But there they are. Virginia is Virginia. They're, they're always good. And they, they have been for years, uh, both those teams at 12 and 3. But in an ACC that uh, maybe isn't what it used to be, uh, you have some interesting teams there near the top. It, it is interesting. You can throw Clemson in that mix, too. Sure. Exactly. As- this has been a year for coaches uh, getting off the dreaded hot seat. Brad Brownell at Clemson, I think. Uh, NC State, uh, Pitt uh, with Capel, and Chris Collins at Northwestern. All have got their teams, uh, uh, you know, pointed at the NCAA tournament. And the, the Northwestern story, we'll talk more with Mike about that. But when you consider that they lost two quality big men in Pete Nance, uh, to uh, North Carolina and Ryan Young to Duke, and still they're 19 and 7, 10 and 5. They're in second place in the Big Ten, and they've just completed a sweep of the Indiana schools in, in this week. So uh, I'll be interested to hear Mike's take on that. Chris Collins is a great guy. I got to know him a little bit when he was an assistant at Duke. He was always helpful to me when I needed it, and and uh, I'm glad to see him kind of get things back. That's a tough place to play, but. You know, uh, Duke is an academic school, and he certainly knows that they were able to get it done there. And and uh, they've had pockets of success at Wake and Stanford. So uh, being an academic school shouldn't be a hindrance to successful uh, basketball. Uh, on the negative side of things, New Mexico State canceled the remainder of their season and fired their coach after hazing allegations yeah. involving players. That whole thing's really disturbing and a huge mess. For a program that had a terrible incident at the beginning of the season, uh, what are you hearing about that whole thing? Uh, it is a mess, and, and I think they just felt like they had to pull the plug. Uh, the hazing must have been worse than anybody even knows. I know Greg Hire a little bit. He was an assistant uh, uh, for uh, at LSU under Will Wade, and he was an assistant at at ETSU for a little bit. And I thought he would be a good hire to at New Mexico State because he was kind of in that group with uh, Chris Jans and Steve Forbes. They were all on the staff together at Wichita State. But sometimes things just spiral out of control. This whole deal kind of reminds me of the Baylor situation years ago before Scott Drew took over. You know, there was a murder involved in that. And just 
crazy stuff. And uh, I don't know. Uh, they must have. There must be way more than we have been able to see on the surface for them to cancel the season and then fire Greg Hire. And some of the stuff is being reported. It's pretty bad to begin with. So yeah, that's a, a yeah a, that, that, a bad that situation. Stuff. I I just don't <laughs> I don't get it, man. If if you're telling me I to join a team or a fraternity, you're going to have to take forty licks from a paddle or crawl on your hands and knees down an alley full of glass. I'm like, see you, boys. <laughs> also, charges were dropped against Chris Beard, the uh, the fired former Texas coach. Now you wonder when and where does he resurface, and you have to figure this yeah. whole incident, whether there are charges involved or not, is a red flag for anybody who might be considering him. Yeah, it's definitely a red flag. I, I never condone violence against anyone, least of all women. Uh, I, You know, it, it seemed like that incident w- was just, it spiraled out of control, and his fiance maybe panicked and, and, and called the law in. And then once that happened and all the negative publicity despite the fact that he was doing a great job and despite the fact that he went to Texas, the school was really left with no choice. But, you know, there are lots of coaches who have rehabilitated their images. Uh, Chris Jans is one. He got into a little trouble at Bowling Green in his first year there after he turned the program completely around. and It was, you know, off court, uh, but he's back coaching. So I would imagine Chris Beard will be back coaching, uh, I think some athletic directors can justify anything. I, I mean, yeah. it's it's really kind of, I don't know, it, it's really kind of phony if you, if you ask me. Uh, you know, a lot of the uh, university presidents, they, they talk about uh, wanting the, the whole student-athlete experience, and then, uh, then it comes down to, well, we, we just need to win at all costs. So, and I'm not saying Chris Beard is a bad guy. Clearly something happened that must have been out of character because he's, you know, never been charged for anything like this or never even been reported for anything like this before. So, you know, somebody's going to give him a second chance. It just depends where, but wherever it is, I think he'll be grateful for it. And and I hope uh, whatever problems he had are behind him. Chris, our, our guest is always one of our favorites. He joins us from time to time on our podcast. Uh, you can read his work with the Sporting News, see him on the Big Ten Network, and Fox uh, does his own brackets and everything. He is terrific. Mike DeCourcy, what's going on? Morning, Kevin. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Buddy, uh, uh, it's it's great to see you. Uh, uh, Kevin could also add that, that uh, Mike is, is a movie and music aficionado. Uh, we have seen Steely Dan a couple of times and Steely Dan was trending on Twitter this week because the producer of, of Nirvana's Nevermind album uh, criticized Steely Dan for being too precise in the studio. And for that, I, I did not respond, but <laughs> suffice it to say, sir, I disagree. <laughs> well, you know, that that's the same concept that, uh, that sort of wrecks all of the seventies art rock or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. And uh, and that's why punk rock came around. Look, I think there's a space for it, or for all of it. And and I, I look, I like the Clash, and I like Steely Dan, and I Me like too. and I like Kansas, and I like Led Zeppelin. And it, you know, you can like all of it. You don't have yeah. to be. That's one of the beautiful things about all. You know, like I and I like country, and I like classical. I mean, you can like it all. But there's no rule against that. No, no, that's exactly right. Uh, 
you, you've had a, a great uh, bird's eye view of the Big Ten for how many years now at the Big Ten Network? Is this it? is my 14th season Wow, the Big Ten Network. I wanted to ask you about Northwestern because, you know, journalists always have to write about the hot seat and uh, everybody said Chris Collins is on it. And this is such a great story. They lose Pete Nance to North Carolina. They lose Ryan Young to Duke big men and, and key contributors. And now they're sitting here. They've swept the Indiana schools, 19 and seven, 10 and five, second place in the big 10. How great a story is this? I think what's amazing about this story, Chris, is that there are like 900 uh, sports writers that went to Northwestern. And yet the story is being <laughs> undertold. Yeah, exactly. It's I, like I the cradle figure of that out. writers. Yeah, I, I, yeah. you know, like I'll tell you this: if it were Bayheim and Syracuse, you'd hear about it. I can tell yeah, you, this. Yeah. those guys yeah. don't shut up. No, I'm no, just no. You, I'm teasing you all you Syracuse folks. Yeah. I'm teasing y'all. It's just uh, this is off to a great I, I start. I, I think there is a little touch of I don't know if you, maybe the Northwestern people could tell me whether it's really ironic, but uh, it is an interesting uh, juxtaposition to have. Uh, that much media influence, but yeah, Western is one of the great stories. And uh, I go back to uh, about three weeks ago. Um, my partner on Big Ten Basketball and Beyond, Rafael Davis, tweet did a tweet like of Wednesday or Thursday of of the week and said that Purdue could have the Coach of the Year, Player of the Year, and Freshman of the Year in the Big Ten. And I said, eh, not so fast, my friend. <laughs> and I, and so right away we figured out this is a good debate for Big Ten basketball and beyond. And so we stopped it there. We didn't do any more Twitter. And then he made his case for Matt, and it's a great case. Matt Painter is terrific. He's one of the best coaches in the country. One of the, no doubt. One of the underrated coaches because he doesn't have a Final Four. If you're not in the Final Four, people you know like to hold it against you. Yeah, they make one more free throw, he's in the Final Four. Uh, yep. So, like, does that affect how good a coach he is? I don't think so. Uh, nope. So uh, that's that that's the reality of it. But then I came in with Chris and uh, and and Chris Collins and what he's accomplished at Northwestern this year. And you made the great case. Mentioned uh, Nance and Young. They were picked thirteenth, thirteenth. That's second from the bottom in the league. They are now second. And this isn't breaking any news. That's second from the top in the league. And so I, I think that what they've been able to accomplish is absolutely amazing. Uh, I I think he should get national coach of the year consideration wow. as well as as well as uh, Big Ten coach of the year consideration. How have they done it without those two bigs? Because they were key contributors. I looked up both their stats. Obviously, I knew what Nance did. But Young, Young had good numbers, too. And he's big and. You need size in the Big Ten, as you know. Well, they they brought in – they have a player who's been in the program named Matt Nicholson who is bigger uh, and probably a little bit uh, – dynamic is a tough word to use him, but he moves pretty well, and he's really strong. And he and he, he, he they don't throw him the ball a lot, but when he gets it and he's around the rim, he, he does a pretty good job of finishing. And he's great at post-D. He, he does – again – it's it's about being big and nimble and alert and that's he's got all that covered and they do a terrific job they hired chris lowry uh who at one point oh, yeah. was a southern illinois coach he yep. worked with 
he, he worked with Bruce Weber for a long time at, at Illinois and at uh, K State. Right. And kind of he's kind of introduced some really interesting things defensively, especially the way they post trap. They do it. They're the best post traps I've seen in terms of scheme since Kentucky uh, of the Rick Pitino era and what they were able wow. to do, say to Tim Duncan. Now they were, but they were doing it with better players. So we're not kidding anybody. I mean, Walter McCarty, Walter McCarty uh, and Antoine Walker and Mark Pope, and those guys were better players than what Northwestern is using. Uh, but they're in terms of how effective they are at it and how they, how good they are schematically uh, they're, it's really effective. And they, it, you know, when you think about it in the big 10, you're going against Hunter Dickinson at Michigan. You're going against Zach Eady at Purdue. You're going against, as they did against Indiana, Trace Jackson Davis. So it's really, it's really helpful to have a great defensive scheme to use against significant big people. Mike DeCorsi is our guest. Uh, as far as the Big Ten and how many of them might get into the tournament uh, when all that goes down here in a few weeks, uh, you looking at eight, you think? And, and what do you do with Wisconsin and Penn State? Yeah, I, I think Wisconsin and Penn State both, they'll, they'll decide themselves about whether they get in. Wisconsin's got a really good base of a resume, but kind of keeps picking at its own uh, circumstance. Like they, they lose last Saturday – uh, uh, one of those don't lose kind of games against Nebraska. And if they go to Nebraska and Nebraska clocks them or, or, or they go back and forth, whatever they were, they were kicking Nebraska's tail for 30 minutes and they let it get away. You can't have that happen. The committee notices those things. It's like, how bad do you want to be in this thing? That's a question. I don't have, I know that they ask that uh, because they, because I've spoken to different committee members. How badly do you want to be in this tournament? And if you're doing things like that, they sort of look at it. Well, not so badly, not so, not so much. Um, and so they now that would be a much more punitive result if it happened, like in the Big Ten tournament stay, sure. or maybe the last week in the season if they were in the same circumstance. But they still have a good solid two and a half weeks before the Big Ten tournament to try to change that perception and. And you get the opportunity. And the other night, uh, they they took the first step in that direction. And uh, they've got, like I said, they've got a really good, solid quad one win base to try to build on. And because analytically they're not very successful, uh, especially in the uh, predictive metrics. I mean, you're looking at in the net right now, they're 77. Uh, and in Ken Palm, they're 71. I mean, those aren't helping. But in the result metrics, they're – 42 which is in the tournament pretty much so that so that dichotomy they have to you know they have to sway you over to one or the other and when you lose to Wisconsin you're you're saying one thing and uh, when you come back a couple days later and win then you're saying another and maybe this is a self-serving question along those same lines, you know, talking about teams and their tournament worthiness. Uh, I, I call the games for Vanderbilt, played a really good non-conference schedule with mixed results, a couple nice wins, and, and maybe a loss or two that they like to have back. But now as you've gotten deeper into the conference season, really playing their best ball, won four straight games, and you look ahead and got a chance for for a few more wins as we head toward the finish of the season, how do you sort of weigh those things you know, looking at the entire picture of a season and saying, okay, who's had the best season versus who are really the best teams are playing the best right now. How do you look at that? Well, one of the things that uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be involved when the NCAA decided that they needed to adjust away from the RPI 
I don't. I should have written down. I don't. I, I probably wrote a column about it, but I can't remember what year it was. It was I'm going to say it was probably 2018. Uh, that the the, uh, the winter of 2018 that they did this, and they had in uh, Jeff Sagarin, Ken Pomeroy, Jerry Palm, uh, Andy Glockner, who wrote a book on college basketball. Uh, excuse me, on NBA analytics and worked for ESPN and SI in his time. Uh, myself, I was like the non-math guy. I was like the dumbest, dumbest math guy in the room. Uh, it's like, oh, you, you didn't take calculus. Okay, you get to, you will let you in anyway. Uh, so th- th- all those people were in there and they had the discussion about what should be you know, valued. And I think that the general consensus of the math guys was choose the teams based on what they accomplish. You shouldn't leave out a team because it's 75th in the net if they've got eight quad one wins or something. But once you get in, then seed the teams according to power, power being reflected by metrics like Ken Palm or Sagarin uh, or BPI. Uh, that that's you know that's teams that are going out and beating good quality opposition by a significant margins. That's kind of what a a Ken Palm rating is about and being effective on both ends of the floor and all of those sorts of things that go into Ken's ratings. Uh, that's kind of, that was kind of the general consensus. And I can get a I can go along with that to an extent. I think by and large, the teams at the top of the bracket should be metrically sound. And so when like a year ago, Providence and Wisconsin won their leagues uh, and Providence uh, what, you know, they, they, they were, a, I think they were around a 30, to 32 kind of team uh, in the net. And I, I think that was, so they, they, they made them a four seed instead of what, you know, usually winning an elite conference like the big East would, would convey a higher seed than that. But sure. I, I thought that there was a justification uh, for putting them as a four as a result. So I, I think there's something, some merit to that. But then when, when I look at, uh, when I look at the, circumstance this year and i use the big 10 as an example you've got a northwestern team that has a a truckload of quad one wins you're talking about seven quad one wins right now and there aren't a lot of teams that have seven quad one wins and a lot of those that do also have five or six quad one losses so they played a lot of games in that in that realm uh northwestern's played 11 of them and won seven that's pretty good they've swept indiana but Indiana is uh, 20, they're, they're now 18th in the net, and Northwestern is 43rd. So what do you do with that? Do you see Indiana ahead because their metrics are better? I mean, that's the whole concept behind metrics, seeding, uh, accomplishments, selection. And so I, I do think that there's got to be some balance in there, and I'm not sure whether or not that's the direction the committee will go. I do think that for a group of athletic administrators who aren't basketball first people universally, that metrics can really help them feel like they understand what they're looking at and maybe get a little bit emphasized as a result. Mike, I, I when I knew you were going to come on, I, I really wanted to ask you this. The NCAA Division I Transformation Committee, as you know, has advised that team sports that has more than 200 member institutions playing it 
have 25% of their field in postseason. And if we apply that to the 363 D1 teams in hoops, that's 90 teams in the NCAAs. What's your thought on, on, on an expanded field? I think I know what your answer is, but I'm going to sit back and let you answer. <laughs> I, it, to me, it's the it's it's inviting the destruction of the sport, and I'm not. And that I, is not I, you did not disappoint, sir. <laughs> that that is not. I, I right. agree. Because I agree. because what you're first of all you're, you're you look at March itself as it exists now, and you have a perfect product, a literal perfect product. And how do we know this? Because I, let's okay on a scale of one to ten in in sports interest in America, NFL is a ten. It's a ten across the board, and then it somehow managed to exceed ten. It's that final caps <laughs> eleven when you get yeah. to the Super Bowl. Okay, that's I think it's the commercial. Say college man. basketball is a six. I don't know. Let's I may, let's say it's a five. So I have a little room to work with, and it may that may you know that may be unflattering. It may be accurate. I don't know. But let's say it's a five for college basketball from. November to March 10th, all right? Well, we get to the NCAA tournament, now we're up at eight or nine. So you are way over and above in terms of regular college basketball fan interest to March, which is all those people plus, you know, their friends and family. It's not the same. It's it, it's The audience grows exponentially. If you look at, there's a... I, I think it's Sports Media Watch puts out every year, mid-year, uh, around June or July, the most popular and watched sporting events of the first six months of the year. And you you get Super Bowl one, NFC, AFC Championship two and three, et cetera. You want to find something other than NFL? It's almost always going to be first thing is college basketball NCAA tournament. And there'll be multiple entries in there. There will be m- more entries for college basketball in the NCAA tournament on that list of the biggest sports TV events of the first six months, then there are NBA games. As big an obsession as the NBA is for the sports media, very few NBA playoff games rise to the level of even uh, like North Carolina, St. Peter's last year. Go ahead, look it up. It's it. You can find the numbers sports media watch first six months of 2022 it's right there in black and white. And I think that, so you don't want to mess with that by clogging it up with all these teams that don't belong. And then you take the first four months of the season and what's your reason to be invested? If I can bounce a ball three times without kicking it off my foot, I'm an NCAA tournament team. 96 teams is anybody that can play even a little. And so yeah. there's no real incentive. It's like maybe I get a seed better or whatever, but I've got to play, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to have to play the same number of games and I don't get advantage that much because the, the, with the way they'd have to structure the tournament, the games would be, you know, I wouldn't get to play a 16 anymore. I'd probably have to play the eighth best team in the Pac-12 or whatever. So it's not, you know, th- so you're not getting the same advantage that you once got. So, what am I? Why am I putting everything into it to win that? To, to what's the difference between being first and second or third? Yeah. And then for fans, like why do I? You know, do I want to go to a game because it's fun and then I can have a diet coke or a beer and have some popcorn? 
But going to sporting events shouldn't be like going to the movies. It yeah. should be, I'm going, oh yeah, that stuff is all fun, but I got to be there for my team to win. I got to yeah. be a part of that. I want to be a part of that because winning matters. You know, right. in, in the NFL, those Sundays, winning matters every week. And right now, college basketball has that more than it's, I don't even want to call them critics because I don't think they're involved enough to criticize the sport more than those in the sports media who dismiss it until March college basketball matters. The reason you don't have any one game draw a great wide TV audience in in college basketball regular season is because there's a million of them. There's so (laughs) many games on. Yeah. So, but stack them all up and that's a pretty big pile. So I I just don't want to take that, what makes that magical and use, I'm sorry, Greg Sankey, but the college world series is not your model. It's not for two reasons. One, nobody outside of the South cares about college baseball at all. And and, and only a handful then jump onto the college world series. It is not a huge event. It is, it, it, is it nice and fun for all the people go to Omaha and it's a great accomplishment for the teams, but you don't want to impact something that's as important to your fan base and to what makes the, the, the whole rest of the enterprise work and, and fund it as college bas- as college men's basketball. I think that would be a colossal error. And, and you've delved into the bracketology realm yourself in recent years. Isn't it as you get down to, to those last few teams, it's hard to find even a 68 field team where the some are deserving? Yes, it's funny. I, I, I used this analogy uh, on another show a couple of weeks ago. I said, you know, sometimes you're driving down the road and you see that boarded up house uh, and you're like, you're, you, you're wondering <laughs> what's in there, but you don't want to go in because you're afraid. I've seen what's in there. That's the analogy. It's yeah. you know, the, the, the the 69th and 70th and 71st team. It ain't pretty. And yeah. you don't want to stage a championship tournament with those teams in it. They are very rare. And I'm talking about one every five to 10 years. There will be a mid-major that is extraordinary. Murray State in 2016 is, a, is an example. They went, they, they went from Thanksgiving to their conference tournament championship game without losing a game, not one game. That's an NCAA tournament team. There has to be room in the first four for them. There should have been room in the first four for them that year, and they shouldn't hide behind analytics because one of the pieces of, of number, one of the, one of the pieces of st- statistical evidence should be considered is well, what do teams like that Murray State team do when they get in the tournament? And you know what the answer is? They win. Teams that win more than 80% of their regular season games, and I don't mean 80%, and I certainly don't mean 78, but teams that win more than 80% win at a rate that outs, that that exceeds their seed, that exceeds their station in college basketball. So those teams should absolutely be considered, and, and Florida Atlantic this year, uh, if they continue on where they're going and then they lose in the Conference USA semis or final, I still believe strongly they're a tournament team because they fit that description. They have dominated. Dominance leads to success in the NCAA tournament. So from that standpoint, okay, man, open the door for them. But we don't need a team 
that's that's 12th in a power conference that does hasn't shown that they're an NCAA tournament team. And how do you show it? Well, you beat the best people. It's Rutgers last year. They had some bad losses, but they were out there earning quad one wins by the fistful. And so they put them in and they played a great game in the first four against Notre Dame, went home. Okay. Uh, Texas A&M complains. Well, yeah, but they didn't play a very strong schedule and they had a nine, what, nine out of 10, something like that in February, late January, February of last year. I had them in. Out of 211 brackets at the bracket matrix, 200, I believe, had them in. Hmm. So we all thought they belonged, but I wouldn't defend them. I wouldn't say it was an outrage. Uh, they, they Should they have been in so I could have had all 68? Absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, but in terms of them versus Notre Dame versus Rutgers, it's just I, I use different flavors of ice cream. And in the, in that case, it's different flavors of not great ice cream. So to use your boarded up house analogy and take it a little farther, some of those teams near the en- end of the bubble have too many skeletons in their closets. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Mike, always great to have you with us. And I got to say, when I've seen some of these full court buzzer beaters lately, I thought, man, that's exhibit A for, for Mr. DeCourcy and no advancing the ball on the timeout. I'm 100% with you. So stay strong on that. Okay. Yeah, Absolutely. buddy. <laughs> we got your back on that. I'm glad to hear it. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Always great stuff. Kevin, Chris, it was a delight to talk to you. Appreciate it, buddy. Well, that was Mike DeCourcy of the Sporting News, the Big Ten Network, and Fox. Uh, he is a lot of fun to talk with. And uh, you talk about a guy who has just really well-thought-out opinions about not just college basketball, but lots of different things in sports. He, he's the guy for that. Yeah, it's, I was, I was going to joke. It's a shame he's not very opinionated. But <laughs> it, he, he is opinionated, and he does it without the hot take type uh, approach, which I like. He used to write for Blue Ribbon. And to this day, he was, he's one of the very finest writers we ever had for Blue Ribbon. And I'm not saying this. Uh, his approach to, to, to writing about basketball is the same as mine. And that is sort of a thinking man's approach. Let's give the person who really is interested in the game as much uh, material as they want, and they can make their own opinions. Yeah, And then – so that means when he gets on a show like ours or the Big Ten shows where he has to make opinions, they're informed opinions, and he's not just whistling Dixie, if you know what I mean. Quick look at the schedule coming up this weekend uh, around the country. Oh, I guess we'll go alphabetically uh, according to height or something like that. Uh, and the ACC, <laughs> Wake Forest at Miami, Pittsburgh plays at Virginia Tech, Duke at Syracuse, and North Carolina at NC State. Uh, the Big East, Seton Hall plays at UConn. Uh, Big Ten, Illinois at Indiana, Rutgers at Wisconsin, Michigan State at Michigan, Iowa at Northwestern, Big 12, Iowa State at Kansas State, Oklahoma State plays at TCU, and really the big one in that league, and maybe nationally on Saturday, Baylor plays at at Kansas. SEC, Tennessee at Kentucky, the rematch there after uh, the Wildcats won in Knoxville. Florida plays at Arkansas in the first game without Colin Castleton. Texas A&M at Missouri will be a big game uh, for those two teams. And the one I'll be working, Auburn at Vanderbilt on Saturday night. And Vanderbilt's won four in a row and really playing well and uh, trying to keep that win streak going. Auburn off of just a great performance against Missouri last time out after they'd had a, a shaky stretch for, for Bruce Pearl's team. So uh, we'll see how that one goes at Memorial Gym this weekend. 
Chris, new basketball movies uh, coming out, including a movie called Air about Michael Jordan and the shoes and how all that got started. And I was teasing my, my broadcast partner on the Vanderbilt games, Tim Thompson, who worked for Nike. And before that, he worked for Converse and was actually with Converse when all the, the Air Jordan stuff started. Uh, I was like, hey, man, who plays you in the movie? He's like, I, I don't think I'm, I'm in that uh, picture, but uh, <laughs> it, it'll, be, it'll be fun to watch that. I saw the trailer on the Super Bowl the other day. Yeah, I did too. Uh, I was, I was going to ask Mike, but we ran out of time. He did not like Matt Damon as Sonny Vaccaro. And I'm not sure. I'm willing to give Matt Damon, who I think is a good actor, uh, the benefit of the doubt. I got to know Sonny a little bit. He was friends with Chris Wallace, who started Blue Ribbon. And when he jumped ship to Adidas, they were a generous sponsor of Blue Ribbon and even provided our cover and, and a poster that we could give to to uh, our readers and a generous amount of cash. Huh. Uh, so <laughs> I miss those days. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a great story because the thing about it is uh, Sonny saw in Michael Jordan uh, the immense power of somebody that could drive a line, you know, his own line of shoes and everybody thought it was crazy. It reminded me that I was the first writer to approach Michael Jordan after his final college game. Uh, it was in the old Charlotte Coliseum. They had been beaten by Indiana. Dan Dockett, of all people, shut him down. And I remember I was the first writer talking to Michael, and he was just as calm, and, you know, he took it low-key. He knew great things were ahead. Maybe he already knew the Air Jordan was in the offing. I don't know. <laughs> but that that's going to be a good one. Uh, another one that I'm a little worried about because the first one's a classic – uh, they're remaking White Men Can't Jump. And uh, I don't know, uh, Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson, that, that's that's going to be tough to stop, but uh, to, to, to better. But we'll see. I'm willing to give it a chance. Did, and the other film, will, will there be a, just watch. Will there be a Rosie Perez character that goes I, on Jeopardy? There must be. I, I don't know who's uh, uh, in it. An actor, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Cinqua Wells. And Jack Harlow, who's a rapper, are in the two roles. Jack would be the Woody Harrelson role, and uh, Wells would be the Wesley Snipes role. I don't know who's Rosie Perez, but uh, surely she, if they don't have her as a Jeopardy contend, <laughs> contestant, I, I'm going to be bummed. The other one that I, I was really fired up to see, and it's on Netflix right now, is a Bill Russell documentary. You could make a case that he's the greatest champion ever. Two NCAA titles at San Francisco, an Olympic gold medal, and 11 NBA titles, two as player coach. Uh, so in, in people's all-time teams, he doesn't get a lot of love as, as that center. Uh, you know, it usually goes to Kareem or maybe Wilt. But I'll tell you, if it were me, I might put him for defense. I'd have Bird, LeBron, Michael, and Magic. And I'll kick everybody's butt. So, because uh, I got Bill Russell back there protecting the rim, and those other guys can do their thing, and we'll see what happens. Sounds like a pretty good starting five right there. You could probably uh, take on most anybody if you had that crew. Well, Chris, uh, we'll call it quits for this week's edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Feels like we covered a lot of ground, and it's always a lot of fun. Thank you, buddy. We'll see you next week. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. We'll talk to you next time.